Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians, if you would. Last week we just spent time on our introduction. This will be our first week primarily in the text. There's a couple of things that are unique about this. Uh, well, I shouldn't say there's just a few of things that are actually unique about this letter from the rest of Paul's letters. And one of them is that Paul begins most of his letters with thanksgiving. I'm going to run through some things here on this. Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Paul begins with, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. In Ephesians 1, verse 16, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you. Philippians chapter 1, he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Colossians 1, he says, I give my thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. First Thessalonians, he starts by saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in your prayers. He does the same thing in 2 Corinthians, Philemon, and even the first letter to the Corinthians. However, for those of you that have read ahead, one thing you might recognize now is that Paul does not start that way with 2 Corinthians. So you might say that Paul has a habit of generally starting his letters with thanksgiving and praise for his readers, but that's strikingly absent from this letter. He doesn't begin it this way. If we take out 1 Timothy and Titus, they also do not start that way, but they're kind of unique in that those are letters specifically to individuals, Timothy and Titus, with some serious issues, trying to challenge false teaching in their communities. And so Paul starts right out of the gate with instructing them on that. So we might not expect Thanksgiving in those letters. And then the only other two letters that we find this absence of a Thanksgiving section is in Galatians and 2 Corinthians, and they share something in common. Anybody remember what the primary theme of Galatians is by chance? There's some pretty striking language in there. Paul was writing to the Galatians because they had become, um, they had started falling prey to false teaching, legalism. And so Paul, really clearly straight out of the gate with them, says this, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And later he calls them foolish Galatians. So it's no shock that you might not start that letter with thanksgiving. And then this letter, so Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and Galatians are fairly common in that they lack this standard thanksgiving and praise that Paul showers upon his readers. After what we did last week as we looked at um, some of the stuff that was underlying this letter, the fact that there was some major tension, some major issues at Corinth. Paul had made an emergency trip. You remember there was a special trip that he made that is referred to by scholars as the painful visit because it caused them a lot of sorrow and grief when he got there. Paul also sent them another letter prior to this one. Um, It wasn't 1 Corinthians. It was another letter that's referred to as the severe letter where Paul wrote to them very bluntly and offered a rebuke. Um, I'm going to suspect, and, and this is purely speculation on my part, But one of the reasons that this letter may lack Paul's typical thanksgiving and praise for them is he probably wasn't very thankful at this point for the the, um, Corinthians. There was tension. They had made a number of accusations against him. In fact, remember in this letter, the first seven chapters are Paul defending himself against the false accusations of the false teachers there and the um, deteriorating opinion that they had of Paul. And so it may be that as Paul wrote this letter, he wasn't particularly thankful 
for what had transpired with the Corinthians. But what I find interesting about that is even though, and again, that's, that's speculation, so take that just as it is, even though that may have been what was happening, Paul still loves them, he serves them, he ministers to them in spite of that, and we're going to see that in this letter. He has not abandoned them or forgotten them in spite of what they had done. Now think for a moment of how easily it might have been for Paul to say, fine, you no longer like me, you no longer respect me, you no longer recognize my position as an apostle, you don't appreciate the suffering and the stuff that I've done for you, you make all these accusations against me, you demean my good name, forget you. I want nothing to do with you anymore. Instead of that, Paul hangs in there. And we're going to see that in, in this, these first seven chapters, some of the language Paul uses where he talks about the grief and the tears that he had in writing the letter. And as he thinks about going, he, in fact, he avoided another visit with them because he said, basically, it'll bring too much grief. You people are supposed to bring joy to me. But all I'm going to find is grief, and I can't bear that. And so he, in spite of the fact that maybe Paul wasn't feeling particularly thankful at this particular moment towards the Corinthians, he didn't give up. He still loves them. The evidence of that is what we have in this letter today. He still wrote them. He's not only defending himself, but he's going to teach them through this. But then he also plans for another visit, and he actually makes another three-month visit to the Corinthian church, as recorded in the book of Acts. So I find that interesting. So the first unique thing we're going to see about this is that he starts this letter in an unusual way. Now, something that Dustin and I had talked about briefly when we first started studying this together was he's defending himself. These first seven chapters ultimately are about him defending himself. But we're going to find out today that he doesn't come right out of the gate defending himself. He's going to focus on another topic. And that topic is suffering and comfort. Suffering and comfort. We might be tempted sometimes when somebody attacks us to immediately start to defend ourselves. But Paul instead starts the letter in a gentle way before he gets to the point where he's now going to start saying, okay, let's get some things straight here. I'm going to defend myself. So right out of the gate, even though this section starts his, his defense, he's going to start with a slightly different topic. And I believe there's a reason for that. And he starts with this idea that God is a comforter. And so we're going to, we're going to look at just the first, uh, I think it's 11 verses or so. Let me start with uh, the first three verses. Or actually, uh, starting in verse 3, I'm sorry. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our, is our comfort abundant through Christ. David Ransifer came up to me last week, and uh, he had been reading through this and uh, made some comment to me about it. He goes, if you mention the word comfort just once, because it's repeated over and over and over in this section, and it, it does become a little bit tedious as you look at it, because Paul drives this home, or this idea home of, of comfort. But notice that he begins by blessing God for his compassion and comfort during recent afflictions. Now imagine for a second what Paul might have been feeling at this point. He had put his heart and soul into Corinth. He spent a year and a half at Corinth. He then went back to Ephesus, which is in the region, and spent three months there, and there were visitors back and forth from Corinth. So Paul had invested a good chunk of his ministry ministering to these people. 
and to now be abandoned by them, to be accused by them, to be um, said to, to have ulterior motives and all kinds of other things, to visit them, and then apparently there's an individual there we think one of the people that Paul mentions here was attacking Paul personally while he was in Corinth. Do you think he might have been facing a little bit of emotional suffering, psychological suffering, um, despair in some respects, on top of the other things? And, and yet, what he does is he takes that and he now uses it as a, as a teaching, teaching opportunity for the Corinthians. The first thing I want us to see is that God provides us compassion and comfort in times of affliction or trouble. That's the first point Paul, Paul drives home here. So he begins by blessing the Lord. He says in verse 3, Blessed be, and he uses two phrases here to refer to God. The first one is that he is a father of mercy. Notice he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. You've heard me define mercy oftentimes as not receiving what we deserve. We can sort of say mercy and grace are not deserving what you, or not getting what you deserve, that's mercy. We deserve condemnation and judgment, we don't get it, that's mercy. But we also get something we don't deserve, which is grace, and so they kind of go hand in hand. Well, Paul uses a slightly different word for um, mercy here, and it's actually, might be better translated as compassion, which is the way the NIV translates it. Peter uses this exact same word, mercy, here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, or 1, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, another way to translate it is great compassion, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter has in mind God's compassion, compassion saving us from our sin. Paul here uses that same word to not refer to God saving us or having, us, having compassion on us regarding our eternal state, but rather here and now the suffering, the things that we experience now. And so Paul is saying that God is a God who has compassion on us. He sees the suffering here in a temporal, earthly sense. So when we struggle, we can be convinced that God is up there feeling compassion towards what we're going through. Paul uses another phrase here. He says that he is the God of all comfort. So these are two titles that he assigns to God, a God of compassion and a God of comfort. Many of you are already familiar with the word Paul uses here for comfort. It's the word um, that we also use of the Holy Spirit. You know who the paraclete is? Paraclete, that's the Holy Spirit. It's a Greek term. That's the word Paul uses here. It's the idea that he is our, our helper, but our, it's the idea that communicates most effectively this idea of comfort. We all know what that is. It means to encourage or to console somebody. It's like walking up and putting your arm around them when you see that somebody is struggling. But you notice that Paul here doesn't just say God is a God of comfort, but what does he say? God is a God of... Somebody want to help me out? God is a God of all comfort. That's Paul's way of saying that God is a God of total and complete comfort. That God's comfort is not partial... It's total and complete. It sort of sets the comfort of God apart from all other forms of comfort. When we think about it, you know, we are a people who are generally drawn to people when we see them struggling and suffering, and we have a tendency, especially as believers, to want to comfort them, to encourage them, right? Hey, it's going to be okay. But that comfort isn't total or complete, Partially because it's external. You know, we can go along to somebody and we can put our arm around them and we can support them and we can do our best to help them. But it's all external. 
But because the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit, it becomes an internal thing with the Lord. In fact, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, another way to read that is the comfort of God, surpasses all comprehension. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus promised us that he would give us a helper, a comforter in the Holy Spirit, which now indwells us, which means that when we experience the comfort of God, it is total and complete. These two traits, the fact that God is a God of compassion and a God of comfort, are what drove God to comfort Paul when Paul faced affliction. He says in verse 4 there that he is a God who comforts us in all of our affliction. The us that is there is specifically referring to Paul when he says that he's the Lord that comforts us. That us is primarily Paul and his companions, and we're going to see that in a, in a minute here. It applies to us, but Paul is going to, in a little bit, talk about how God comforted him in his afflictions and, and those around him. actually comes in chapter 2. In fact, why don't you turn there with me just briefly. Sorry, chapter uh, 7. Chapter 7 of first, or 2 Corinthians. I want you to look at this. He says, God comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. He was waiting to hear good news from the Corinthians when um, Titus had delivered the letter to the Corinthians and came back. Paul was waiting to hear back. And when Titus arrived, he said, God comforted us through Titus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That was a reference to comfort. Paul in Romans says that the scriptures comfort us. Isaiah actually said that the Lord had a habit of comforting Israel. Listen to this from Isaiah 12, 1. He says, And in that day you will say, Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is presented as a Lord of comfort. And so what, we've, what we find, first and foremost, as Paul starts this letter to the Corinthians, and he's reflecting on the abuse that he had taken and the fact that he himself had struggled immensely in part of his ministry, he's going to highlight that a little bit later, some of what he had gone through. As he begins this letter, the thing that he focuses most on is God provides me with comfort and compassion when I have to bear the afflictions of, of ministry and life. And so that's the first lesson he has for the Corinthians. And the reason this was so critical for the Corinthians, if you remember, one of the things in our introduction last week was that in Corinthian society, they looked down upon suffering. So here Paul comes in, and he's a guy who has been in prison and been shipwrecked and been beaten to the point of, of death at one point. Um, he was a man who was under constant suffering and affliction. Well, these hyper-apostles, as he calls them, come in. They're probably better dressed, better financed. They come waltzing into the city, and they start saying, well, how can you really trust Paul? Look, look at him. He's a mess. You know, he's a tent maker. He's always struggling, you know. He can't even make enough to take care of himself, and sometimes he has to rely on the giving of others. And so they had been looking at Paul with a certain amount of disdain because of his suffering. And Paul flips that completely on its head. And he uses it as an opportunity to say, well, let me really tell you how to evaluate suffering. The first thing you, you Corinthians need to understand is that when, when people get afflicted, it's an opportunity for God to comfort them, to provide mercy to them. 
And so Paul is going to use that as a teaching opportunity. And the first thing he teaches the Corinthians about suffering is that God comforts those who are afflicted. Let's move on. The second principle or thing we're going to see here is that when God comforts us, it allows us to comfort others. And this is going to become important for Paul as well in his ministry. If you look at verse 4 again, he says, He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers in our comfort. And so the second principle that Paul wants to share with them is that God's purpose in comforting us, one of them, is so that we might be able to comfort others who also struggle and face affliction. So Paul saw both or saw a purpose in both his suffering and in the comfort that he received from God. He says right there in verse 4, it's so that we would be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves have received. The severe persecution that Paul faced certainly qualified him to understand what others what others would go through. The book of 1 Corinthians tells us the things that Paul struggled with, the number of times he had been beaten the number of times he'd been whipped within one lashing of his death, being shipwrecked multiple times, floating around in the sea for a couple of days. Um, he knew what it was like to suffer. God beat him up pretty well, didn't he? There's not a whole lot that people could say to Paul to say he didn't understand what they were going through. He said there were times where he was in need, there were times where he was thirsty, there were times where he was hungry, there were times where he was worn out, there were times where he couldn't sleep. There's not a whole lot that you can look at Paul and say, you just don't know what I'm going through. He saw it all. And because of that, that uniquely equipped Paul to understand suffering and to be able to comfort other people. And one of the reasons he was able to comfort other people is because he had experienced the Lord's comfort at those times. It's interesting because what Paul is really talking here about is experiential knowledge with suffering. It's one thing for us to to sort of say, yes, God will comfort me, but it's another thing to experience it and have experiential knowledge. I'm sure that if you thought long and hard enough, you could probably think through times in your life where you went through a difficult time and you experienced God's comfort. That's experiential knowledge. And because of that, it uniquely equips you then to help other people. You know, this is why James, when when you look at the book of James, he's got a section on trials and struggling. And you notice what he says in the very first chapter, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, what's interesting about that phrase there, knowing, is it's a Greek word for experiential knowledge. What another, uh, probably the best way to translate that is this. Consider it all joy, because you know from your experience that trials test your faith, and that tested faith then produces endurance, staying power, the ability to go through more. And so what James does is he calls on his readers to think about the way that God has used the difficult times in their life to build their faith, to give them endurance, 
It's experiential knowledge. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He's saying, because I've suffered, because of the affliction that I've been going through, God has comforted me. And because I've experienced that comfort of God, I am able now to help others. I'm able to encourage them, comfort them. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. That's a direct purpose statement. Paul says, We suffer and are comforted for your benefit as Corinthians. He says, If we are comforted, it is because of your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. He says in verse 7, For our hope is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers with our suffering, or in our suffering, you will also share with our comfort. So the comfort that Paul received from the Lord helped him to encourage the Corinthians in their own suffering. We have to remember that Christians at this time you know, suffered persecution, including the Corinthians. In fact, the reason that Priscilla and Aquila had headed to Corinth, where Paul met them, was because they had been kicked out of Rome. They lost their home, everything. It was a brutal time to be a Christian. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Get a picture of what Paul might have gone through. It says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. In other words, he's saying, afflictions are going to reveal something here. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who are li- for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also spoke, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Basically what he's saying here is, we have suffered severe persecution for your benefit. We have received God's comfort, for your benefit. Steve probably knows you. You remember Phil Huey by chance? Phil Huey was, uh, he worked for a company in town that did our phone support for the company that Steve and I had worked for. And um, he had unexpectedly lost his daughter. She had suffered an asthma attack at home and she died. I mean, she had only been in the hospital, I think, a, a day or so. Completely caught off guard. Um, he's a Christian man. Um, but it was interesting because upon that happening, he immediately began to um, to email people because obviously when she first suffered it, she, she, she didn't die immediately. I think it was within a day or so. But immediately he sent out emails to those of us that he knew were believers and asked us to pray. And um, what was interesting is over the course of the week, she, she basically died, I think, within a day or so, but then had to plan the, the funeral. And he actually preached at his daughter's funeral. And um, he had sent out these daily emails. Um, and what they reflected was this amazing perspective on God's grace 
and mercy and God's comfort at this time. And I was, I was blown away by, by how this man wrote and the way that it reflected the comfort that he was experiencing at this amazingly difficult time. And then to listen to his sermon at his daughter's funeral um, and just the, the way that he um, emphasized the way that God had comforted and cared for them through this. What was interesting about that is um, that was shortly before that, for, shortly before Kimberly had been diagnosed with her tumor and we ended up at Children's Hospital. And that stuff was so fresh in my mind that during that whole week, while we were struggling in the hospital trying to, you know, waiting for news for, for whether it was cancerous or not cancerous, that whole time I started doing the same thing that filled it. I sent out letter or emails every day. And every day I thought to my, I, I kind of reflected on Phil and Phil's response. Had it not been for Phil and for what I had learned through watching Phil and reading through his emails, I might not have handled that time the way that I did. The comfort and the peace that I felt at that time was a direct reflection of what I had learned as Phil had gone through that just a few weeks or months before we had. That's what Paul is getting at here. That because he had suffered the way that he had, because he, he had seen God comfort him, he was absolutely convinced that God would comfort the, comfort the Corinthians and that he would have a part in that. So as Paul is being beat up by the Corinthians, as he is facing not just affliction from the ministry on the outside, but also now facing affliction from the Corinthians themselves, what's on Paul's heart and mind is, God helps me and comforts me in my affliction and my suffering. I can now help the Corinthians with their afflictions and with their comfort. Wow. Especially considering he's being beaten up by these people. But again, Paul is teaching him here. So even though he's beginning his defense, his focus is on teaching them about the comfort and the affliction of God. And again, that strikes me as interesting because part of the affliction Paul was feeling was because of what the Corinthians had done to him. And yet, he's reaching out to them. So Paul's, Paul was confident that the Corinthians would be comforted just as he was. He says in verse 7, And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so you are sharers of our comfort as well. So in the same way we experience God's compassion and comfort at difficult times, it better prepares us to minister to other people. If you ever wonder why it is that God allows you to suffer, why he allows Christians to suffer, I suspect part of that is so that we might be able to comfort those around us that need Jesus Christ, not just one another. I don't think this is an overstatement, but I think that uh, Christians can be the most compassionate and understanding people on the planet. When they live out their faith, when they see others struggle. Why is it that most of the hospitals in the United States were started by churches? Do you ever wonder, why do we have... You know, Grant Methodist Hospital, and Riverside Methodist Hospital, and Mount Carmel, the Catholic Hospital. Why is that? Christians. We've taken the gospel all over the world. Evangelism around the world exploded when God established the United States. Why is that? Because as Christians, we are naturally supposed to be compassionate. But we would not be very effective 
had God removed all suffering from our lives, would he? Would we? They could look at us and say, what do you know? Life is good. God doesn't allow you to suffer. I think it's one of the reasons maybe why Paul suffered the way that he did. He was likely the greatest apostle that we have. He also seems to have suffered probably more greatly than some others. Certainly probably more than the hyper-apostles that had come to Corinth. What's the third principle that we can learn here that Paul wants to share with the Corinthians and share with us? Look at verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we were despairing even to life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayer so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. The third principle here is that the afflictions we face have a divine purpose. They have a divine purpose, and Paul saw that. Paul starts in verse 8 there, explaining to the Corinthians the afflictions that he had faced when he went off into Asia. He doesn't provide a lot of specifics there. But if we look into the book of Acts, and we look at the timing, that may actually have been something that happened at Ephesus, which was in the region that Paul was at here with Corinth. He went to Corinth, or went to um, Ephesus, and he was preaching against idolatry, and there was a riot. It's actually Acts chapter 19. I'll just summarize it here, what happened. Paul begins to preach, and the impact of his preaching in Ephesus was so great that the Greeks started turning away from their man-made idols and worshiping Jesus. Well, the coppersmiths in the area weren't real happy because they were the ones that made the idols. So uh, so many Greeks had been won to Christ at Ephesus that the coppersmiths had seen their business start to go down. Can you imagine that in our culture and society here? If we had such a, such a huge impact on, on um, our, our culture through winning people to Christ that certain business types in the community started losing business, that's what was happening in Ephesus. So this man named Demetrius... A coppersmith or a silversmith actually gathered together all of the other silversmiths, metal workers in the area, because he was afraid that Paul's preaching would destroy his business. Luke reports that these men were so filled with rage that they threw the city into this confusion. They started causing all this commotion in the city, and they caused a riot. And so a mob of thugs came and grabbed Paul and his traveling, or actually just his traveling companions, specifically two individuals, Gaius and Aristarchus, and he dragged them into this local theater and they started making these accusations against them. When Paul learned of it, um, he decided he wanted to go to the theater himself. He wanted to basically teach or preach or whatever he was planning to do to try to convince these men to not to do what they were not doing what they were doing. But Paul's disciples were so afraid of what was happening that they prevented Paul from actually going to the theater. Now, we don't know how violent it got, but it's enough to where a clerk in the town had to come up and quell the riot because they didn't want the Romans to come in now. Because obviously, the city's out of control. The Romans would have, would have come in. And so fortunately, this clerk sort of put the riot down. But the, the disturbance was so great that Paul finally had to leave the city probably um, 
in fear for his life. Now, we don't know all the details of the text, but he left Ephesus at that point. The riot was bad enough to where Paul likely would have been taken himself, might likely have been killed. Paul says in the letter here that they faced death. So if these two events are related, what Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians, and if he's referring to this Ephesus riot, it was one where his life was threatened. So much so that he had to leave the city. So whether or not that was really the case or not, in other words, whether Paul's talking about the same thing or not, um, he faced intense persecution. He says they were burdened excessively. Um, it means they were completely overwhelmed. It's another way to say that. He says that they faced this persecution beyond their strength or beyond their power. He says things had gotten so bad that they feared for their lives. Notice he says, so that we despaired even to life. The word that Paul uses there, despair, implies complete and utter despair. Paul thought it was over. Didn't think he would survive. So, how did Paul perceive this type of persecution and affliction that he was faced with? Well, he saw two divine purposes in it. So even though he was at the point of despairing to death, he still saw two divine purposes in what God was doing there. The first one is that the Lord used it to teach Paul to trust him, he says. Notice he says, verse 9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we could not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul, as he looked at the struggles that he had, he saw the first divine purpose was that God would teach Paul to trust not in himself, but to trust in God. He could trust in the Lord because God raises the dead. I, I kind of jokingly say this at times, that if God can raise the dead, what can't he do? If we think God can't do stuff, just think, well, but he raised Jesus from the dead, and he actually raised Lazarus, and a couple of healings that he... If God can do those kind of things, what, are, what, what kind of things can he not do? He can certainly take care of petty things, affliction, difficulties. In fact, he tells us in verse 10 that God did just that. He delivered them, he says, from so great a peril as death. So Paul did, or God did actually, indeed deliver Paul. Elsewhere in the letter he says, yeah, our time's not come up yet. God's not ready quite to deliver us over to death yet. Now a time will come. Paul is ultimately put to death by the Romans when God determines that his ministry and purpose in this life are over. But God continued to deliver Paul over and over and over again from afflictions. And Paul saw that. So he saw that as part of that, that God's purpose for him was to teach him to trust the Lord. Now think about this for a second. You know, Paul, we've got half of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. We can see that Paul was a rather outspoken individual. He was highly educated. He likely, as a Pharisee, um, was wealthy initially. Um, likely gave all that up because of the traveling that he did. He became a tent maker. But he didn't have a trouble being bold, being outspoken. Didn't seem to be a man who feared much. You know, he had, again, faced death numerous, numerous times. But he tells us that God gave him a thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan. And basically he said the purpose was that it would teach him that God's grace is sufficient. In other words, one of the reasons why God may have allowed Paul to suffer here was that it would have been easy for Paul to rely on himself. He was an established man. Probably, remember the arrogance as he stoned Stephen? might have been very easy for Paul to just sort of rely on his own strength and abilities. 
Because he had quite a bit. Again, a prominent man, well-known, well-educated, well-connected. So Paul looked at this and he says, you know what, God's teaching me to rely on his power, not my own. There's a divine purpose in my afflictions and my suffering. The second purpose that Paul saw was that it would result in thanksgiving being made to God for his grace and his favor. Look at verse 11. You also joining in helping us through your prayers, and then he gives us the purpose clause, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. What Paul is basically saying here is that the second purpose for suffering and for God then comforting is that as God does that, he receives thanks from many people. People, Think about this for a moment. I want you to just think, reflect upon um, the walkers, in, in, or the walkers, the um, Wittens, and the struggles that their family has faced over the course of the last six to eight months. Okay? How many of us have read Jennifer's posts? How many times have we shared the good news of, of what God has done? Their ups and downs, and when we've seen Walker struggle with some of the things related to the chemotherapy, and the times where he's been in agonizing, agonizing pain, not even being able to drink water, and then we see how God works through all of that and brings relief, and um, in other respects, at times has limited the, the um, impact of the chemotherapy, or we hear the number of times that the Lord has given um, Walker and his family, opportunity to reflect Christ. Um, Walker's dad was sharing with me how um, sharing the gospel at work at times can be very difficult. But he made a comment one time where he's like, right now I can say whatever I want because nobody's going to shut me up when I'm talking about my son having cancer. And so I can talk about Jesus and they will not shut me up. How many of us have thanked the Lord for that? How many of us have rejoiced over that? How many of us have been encouraged by that? That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's like, my affliction and then the Lord comforting me at that time has led to so many people giving thanks to the Lord. That's part of the divine purpose. And we see that, like I said, with our own example here of of watching um, what the Lord has done with one of our own family members here. So Paul looks at this and he says there's divine purpose in suffering. And again, that's, that's, that's like taking a stick and poking the Corinthians in the eye. Because their view of suffering was likely, Paul doesn't have God's favor. Look at, look at the way he suffers. He comes in here, he's not dressed all that great, you know. And gee, didn't you hear what happened over at Ephesus there? Caused this big riot. Nobody was happy. He put the whole city into an uproar and he's going to get him in trouble with the Romans and... You know, man, he almost lost his life. They had to literally drag, and it would have been even worse had they let him go into the theater. What in the world was Paul thinking? Do we really want to follow a guy like that? You know? And you got these hyper-apostles saying, no, no, you don't want to follow a guy like that. You know? And Paul says, no, you don't understand. My sufferings have resulted in God being praised and God being thanked. And so, it's interesting, again, as we look at how Paul begins his defense of himself. He doesn't come right out of the gate 
attacking them. He doesn't come out of the gate saying, you people are wrong, you've accused me wrong instead. He's looking at the situation, he's thinking, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. It's brought a lot of hardship. Um, there's a lot of affliction here. There's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of grief. Paul is struggling. He reflects on the fact that God had ministered to him and God had comforted him. And as Paul is thinking about all those things and he's getting ready to pen this letter to the Corinthians to defend himself and he says, you know what? I think I'll start a little softer. I'll get to the defense, but I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk about the value of suffering and what it does to reveal God's comfort. And so he says it's first and foremost a way to reveal that the God we serve is a God of comfort and compassion. He has compassion and comfort on us. He sees our afflictions. And he uses those through the work of the Holy Spirit for a number of reasons. Paul says that the suffering that we have is oftentimes not just for ourselves, but to benefit others who go through suffering. And I would argue that especially being able to have compassion and comfort um, encouragement for the unsaved. You know, we oftentimes think that, you know, we should be exempt from those things because we serve a loving God and He loves us. The Bible never promises us completely that we will not suffer. And thank God for that. I don't think we'd be as effective in, in reaching out to those that desperately need Christ. You know, I came to a point, I came to Christ at a time in my life where I was severely depressed. I was in anguish. You know, there were times I... I used to think about, you know, I thought of suicide, but I also never thought of it seriously because I realized I could really do something stupid and make it even worse, you know? But God used the suffering that I was under to lead me to Christ. And the guy that led me to Christ understood that suffering. You know, the guy was, he came to Christ because he was in a car accident with four of his best friends he was stuck in a car, trapped for three hours with their dead bodies as they were trying to cut him out of the car. You know? He knew what it was like to suffer. And so, we suffer on behalf of others, not just ourselves. So that as we experience God's suffering, we can then comfort those, both saved and unsaved. And the third thing is that our suffering and the comfort we receive are ultimately for a divine purpose. Isn't that true of God? God does not waste his time or energy doing anything that doesn't have purpose behind it, including allowing us to suffer or uncomforting us. And so Paul says that his sufferings had a divine purpose. They taught him to trust in the Lord, and it ultimately resulted in God being praised and thanksgiving by many people being poured out to God. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up with that. Next week, um, Paul's going to really get into his defense and he's going to defend some of his behavior and some other things. And um, again, we'll see him be gracious and compassion. We'll see his heart. We're going to see a lot of things revealed about the Apostle Paul. Because again, this letter revo- reveals more about the Apostle Paul probably than any other letter we have.